What should a newbie player in Daily Fantasy do? We'll ask Talk with Todd commentator Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 10th. It's show number 16 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. In just a few minutes, we will talk with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about playing tips for daily game newbies, early season fabbing, and more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have the return of our regular pitcher matchups analysis with Greg Fishwick looking at Clayton Kershaw versus Archie Bradley, Phil Hughes against Chris Sale, and more. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talks about how we don't know where this game is going. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading us off, as always, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. We should point out that ordinarily we get to enjoy your dulcet tones in full uh, uh, high-quality audio, but you're having a little technical trouble with your computer, so we'll have you over the phone today. And, Nick, I saw your byline the other day at BaseballHQ.com. You're back up doing the pitcher matchup reports. Pitcher matchups are back and running, and uh, those are always fun to do. It's an exciting kind of thing to do those weekly, uh, those daily uh, matchups. Without getting into a ton of detail, Nick, what do you do with the pitcher matchups? How do you go about the analysis? Well, the, the uh, Baseball HQ has a, uh, an algorithm that they use that generates a matchup score for each pitcher each day uh, based upon a lot of things. It's based upon the ballpark they're pitching in. It's based upon the team they're facing. It's based upon how they've done in their most recent starts. And so those, um, those algorithms then generate a matchup score. And so we take a look at the matchup scores and then uh, determine which ones that we should be writing about. And uh, that's how that's how we do it. I, I really enjoy doing it. It's it's an interesting kind of process. And of course, the outcomes seem obviously to the advantage of daily players. You get to find out which pitchers are looking like good bets, and then you can calibrate that against their salaries. But Nick, you were telling me uh, that there's real advantages for the full season player, even in keeper leagues, because of the ability to spot trends. It's easy for a pitcher to to start doing well and for nobody to spot that that's really happening until they've until they've won suddenly won five or six games in a row or they've got an ERA that's minuscule or something like that but the matchup tool with those green ratings um, allows me to start picking spotting pitchers who are breaking out sometimes before other people notice that. Last season for example Dallas Keuchel was showing up as continually green. I had no idea who he was. 
but it was picked him up in in, uh, in several leagues, and of course did very well with him. So those kind, of, the, the, it's useful to me in that way as well. It's a tremendously useful tool for all kinds of uh, fantasy formats and well worth looking at at BaseballHQ.com, the pitcher matchups tool. Uh, Nick, moving on, we have research at the site that has showed that every year, one-third or more of pitchers who start the season as closers don't end the season as closers. And uh, in this season, of course, the closer go-round is off to an early start with the trading of Craig Kimbrell to the Padres. This has created a slot open for... uh, Jason Grilly of the Braves to to start as a closer, and Phil Hertz covered the story earlier this week in Playing Time Today. What's the analysis here, Nick? Yeah, Jason Grilly is going to get the close for the Braves, and you know you 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 may look at that and say, well, how many saves is he really going to get? Well, you know the Braves are the Braves are rebuilding this year. They're not or shouldn't have a great team, but they may the games they win may be close games, which means Jason Grilly may find himself in there quite a bit. And here's a guy that's an experienced closer. Lost his role last year in Pittsburgh because he had arm problems, uh, and but uh, overall his skills are really very good. Uh, in in before the arm problems in 2013, a BPV of 188. Last year dropped back to 87, but uh, very high dom rates. Usually strikes out around nine, ten guys per nine innings. Uh, ex- excellent command. Uh, I think Jason Grilly is a good guy to pick up in almost any leagues. He's 38 years old, so. You know, if you're in a keeper league, you're probably not going to hang on to him once the year's over because of the, the age factor. But uh, he could pick up a lot of save between now and the end of the year. Uh, indeed, Grilly went for $41 in fab in the Tout Wars Mixed uh, League. There was heavy bidding on him, as you'd expect, uh, people tr- trying to jump on the expectation of saves. Now, Nick, uh, he did have the outstanding base performance values, especially in 2012 and 2013, way over 100, 166, 188. But something I noticed that that is a bit of a cautionary tale, perhaps, is for the last three seasons, uh, we're talking about uh, 12, 13, 14, his Line drive rates have been 24%, 25%, 26%, which is very high for any kind of pitcher. We were usually expecting around 20 and uh, as a result, his hit rates have been 34%, 35 33%, and ordinarily we expect both those things to regress to the norm, but they don't seem to be for Jason Grilly. Does that cause you any concern? Well, you know, you certainly have to look at that. It looks to me as though Jason Grilly's line drive rate is, gonna, is really kind of normalized in that, in that mid-20s sort of area, which means he's going to have high hit rates. So the, the thing that counterbalances that is a strikeout rate. So as long as he's getting that high dom and being able to strike out one guy per inning or, or better than that, uh, maybe he can overcome that kind of a hit rate. But that certainly is a concern. And here's a guy that, that uh, also does not, does not generate a huge number of ground balls. Ground ball rates 31%, 33 32 So more of a fly ball pitcher, line drive pitcher than a ground ball pitcher. Uh, and that can be a uh, a problem, of course, as well. And yet it hasn't been a problem for Jason Grilly over his career. The last eight or nine years, I'm looking at him, he's had these very high fly ball rates, but nothing out of the ordinary as far as his home run rates. He hasn't given up more than one home run per nine innings, but once in the last eight or nine years. So it seems like he's got the knack of getting fly balls without having the negative impact of home runs. Right, and that's, that seems to be uh, that's just a part of the way the way he pitches, and so... Uh, as long as he can keep the ball in the park, those hits uh, are going to be something of a problem, but he can, he can get the strikeouts that uh, kind of neutralize all of that before he winds up in, uh, in big trouble.
So I think the question is going to be uh, 2014, clearly an injury-plagued uh, year. His uh, value went down to about 2 bucks. His ERA was way up near 4. But the years before that, the couple of years before that, he was a really dominant closer. And it'll be, uh, I guess the question for bidders will be, is he going to be 2014 again or is he going to be 2013 again? And there's a, uh, that's a pretty important question, Nick, because there's $13, $14 of value on the table between the two. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it is a very important kind of thing, and so it's hard to tell. He started out very well. He pitched very well in spring training. Uh, a huge number of strikeouts, very few walks in spring training, uh, so that that's a good indication and certainly has started the season well. And I guess we should have mentioned that, that uh, in Tout National League uh, draft, uh, Jason Grilly had been drafted at the, at the original auction, and somebody in that league picked up Jim Johnson because his name was bandied about by the uh, Braves as another possible closer, maybe the next in line kind of thing. Boy, that's, that's optimism, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that is optimism. I mean, Jim Johnson was always, you know, he got the job done, but was kind of had some shaky numbers when he was pitching in Baltimore, and so uh, I, I, I think probably will not, do most of the work. Uh, really looks like a much better closer to me out of Atlanta than Johnson. And I know we don't have to go into a lot of detail about uh, this question, but of course, if you happen to have drafted the Padres' uh, Joaquin Benoit, uh, tough luck for you. It doesn't look good for him. No, very, very, no not at all. Benoit is going to drop back into the ninth inning. I mean, the eighth inning, rather. Another closer situation in the National League, Nick, also changed. The Mets' Henry Mejia was deemed unavailable with a sore elbow and has been placed on the DL. The Juris Familia steps into the closer role in New York, and again, Baseball HQ's Phil Hertz has the skinny. For, for now, at least, Juris Familia is going to get the saves in New York. And Juris Familia is a good pitcher, but Juris Familia has not, to this point in his career, generated the kind of, of base player values that we look for in a closer. Last year, pitched very well, an 87 BPV, so he's getting up there close to what we would call elite, but not elite. And Juris Familia has one, one serious issue. He pitches, pitched very, very well, is, is lights out against right-handed hitters. Uh, allowed just three extra base hits to right-handers all year. That's amazing. And a, a, a very strong ground ball rate, over 50% ground ball rate, so that's, even, that's, that's wonderful as well. The problem is Jersey has trouble with left-handed batters. Uh, last year, overall dom rate for the year was 8.5 against right-handed, against left-handed batters. Dom rate dropped to 5.2. And what's worse, his command dropped to 1.1, meaning he walked almost one batter for every batter that he struck out, and an OPS of 821 against left-handed hitters. So Juris Familia is, has problems with left-handers, and once the, ma- the opposing managers catch on, he's going to see a lot of left-handed hitters when he comes in to pitch. BaseballHQ.com is likewise being cautious. We're still projecting just 10 saves for Familia because... Uh, I think we're expecting Mejia to come back. He had a diagnosis of the elbow, and it turned out it's just inflammation. He had a cortisone shot. not a. He's not on the Tommy John track, in other words. And so we're expecting Mejia to resume the closer role at some point, and or Bobby Parnell is standing by in the weeds as well. There could be some upside to the projection if Familia does really well, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. It's a different situation we have with, with, with Gorilla, where we expect him to maintain that closer role for a good part of the year. Uh, Juris Familia may not. There's still, as you said, a lot of uncertainty there, a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen when Bobby Parnell comes back, and certainly Mejia is not 
uh, once that inflammation goes down, may in fact work himself right back into the uh, the closer role. Nick, we always uh, end up discussing something interesting that starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist Stephen Nickrand has written at BaseballHQ.com, and this week is no exception. He has a really neat column on six starters, and with all the injuries that happen, Nick, it seems like this is a natural place to go to look for, for potential and for talent waiting for an opportunity. One of the names on the list that Stephen has come up with is Arizona pitcher Randall Delgado, and Stephen says he could be this year's Carlos Carrasco. Randall Delgado was a guy that, remember, came up as, a, as an outstanding prospect a couple of years ago and got traded from, uh, from Atlanta to Arizona. And last year I had trouble putting some things together. But Randall Delgado was beginning to show um, some outstanding, outstanding numbers at times. The problem at this point is inconsistency. Last year in May, 13.5 DOM, 2.9 control, uh, 163 BPV in May of last year, September of last year, 8.2 DOM, 1.5 control, 113 BPV. Fantastic in the spring, 14 strikeouts to two walks in 13 innings pitched. 25 years old, right kind of at the right age perhaps to break out. So Randall Logato, it looks to me, I, I think is a good target. He could wind up, certainly has the stuff that he could wind up in the bullpen if, in fact, they need, uh, they need help there and could, be, could become a, a really dominant closer down the line but also could wind up in the rotation, uh, and I agree with Stephen, could be easily be this year's Carlos Carrasco breakout. The projection, again, is cautious at BaseballHQ.com. We're only expecting him to get uh, less than 30 innings uh, in a bullpen roll, a couple of wins, a couple of losses, value right around zero or slightly below. So if you're looking at a guy like Randall Delgado, this is definitely going to be a speculative play, maybe somebody you put on your reserve list if your league rules allow it, and just stash him away just in case. Uh, you, of course, you don't want to, if your league says you got to carry him as an active player, maybe that's a different kind of discussion, and you're really then only talking about deep leagues. Right, I think so. It kind of depends all on your league rules, but if it's a guy you can stash, he's certainly someone that I think would be worth stashing to see how he does this season. And finally, Nick, Stephen Nickrand is also this year's Batting Buyer's Guide columnist, and this week he looked at bats off the bench. And one name that jumped out at me was the Cardinals' Randall Gritchick. You know, Randall Gritchick looks like a, an interesting kind of bat guy, I mean, off the bench guy. 23 years old, so really has not had a, a good shot at the majors last year. Three home runs, eight RBIs, 245 batting average, 110 at bats. Um, so, you know, a, a kind of a, a low-profile bench guy at this point. But in 66 at-bats in August and September, 485 slugging. That's really very, very good at that level uh, for someone that young. And so uh, he's kind of a work in progress, but, but, and his power it will take some time to develop, but it's there. Um, really had an outstanding spring. If you look at it, was probably the best player in the Cardinals camp in the spring, uh, some... some uh, uh, nine nine eleven OPS, eight uh, walks, ten strikeouts in forty four at bats. So if anything happens to uh, Jason Hayward, Matt Holliday, uh, Matt Adams, Gritchick could find himself in the lineup uh, as a starter and then could produce some power. Uh, at this point, we're only projecting a two twenty four batting average, so that's something to keep an eye on uh, because there there's some batting average downside perhaps there. Uh, we're projecting a very limited uh, playing time opportunity for Gritchick so far, 130 or so at-bats, maybe worth a buck or two at the most. But I, I agree with you. I think the potential here is for Gritchick to maybe add some playing time through an injury or maybe uh, some slowdown in performance. Uh, yeah, very definitely. Yeah, I want to recommend very strongly both of those columns that Stephen did this week. They're, they're excellent columns and looking at guys who, from the pitching standard point of view, but also from a, a hitting point of view, 
who may be the kind of next up when there's an opening in their in their respective teams' uh, lineups. Nick, thanks a million for joining us. I hope you get your computer straightened out, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com and is our man covering the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League, and it's the BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jocko, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. And the regular season is underway, so we're going to have plenty to talk about. Uh, we started our National League segment, Jock, with Harold Nichols, talking about the closer go-round in that league, and it looks like in the American League it's more of the same. Uh, first, we see Detroit closer Joe Nathan has been suddenly placed on the DL with some kind of elbow issue after a, a, getting a save on opening day. Looks like Joaquin Soria will replace him. Tom Kephart of BaseballHQ.com covered all this news in playing time today recently. What's the situation in Detroit? Well, it's funny. We, we all got a lot of questions about Nathan during the preseason, and all of us were, were or at least most of us, I know I was, were running, uh, running for cover from Nathan primarily because of his skills, and, and we'd forgotten that Nathan was a, a, an injury risk as well, at least recently, and he's had Tommy John surgery in his past. Um, we didn't, uh, we didn't consider the injury portion, but right now with, with Nathan being injured and based on his 2014, I would be running even faster from Nathan. Um, Soria is, is another guy who has health issues, but, uh, based on last year, if he's healthy, at least in comparison to Nathan, Nathan, his skills are far superior. So I would be, uh, I'd be going with Soria right now. Yeah, when coming into it, there was a lot of people who said that uh, the smart play was to bypass uh, Joe Nathan altogether and and take Soria on the assumption that something would go wrong with Nathan. Uh, more likely, as you said, he was going to just perform poorly, but there was also this injury problem. As I said, it was a, a an elbow injury, a flexor strain. I'm not sure how serious that is, but uh, already Baseball HQ has given all the saves for Detroit this year pretty much to Joaquin Soria. Now, what about this young fellow, Bruce Rondon? Well, Rondon has his own injury problems. He's coming off of Tommy John surgery, and he had an interesting spring because when he was throwing, the reports are he was throwing 100 miles an hour. Um, he um, he took a couple of weeks off uh, to to rest his arm, and then he came back and he struck out three hitters in a row. Now he's down with a biceps injury. He's risky, but he's young. And given that Soria is going to be a free agent next year, and he's in his uh, early mid thirties, um, I would if if you're speculating in a keeper league, I would definitely pick up Rondon. It doesn't appear that his current injuries are are threatening, given the way he's reportedly throwing. Yeah, anytime they're touching 100, that's a good sign. Uh, Tommy John surgery notwithstanding. Uh, just the other night in uh, New York, Brett Cecil of the Blue Jays was yanked as closer by Toronto manager John Gibbons after he came into the game against the Yankees with a 3-1 lead. Uh, according to the rules, it wasn't a save situation, but the bases were loaded. 3-1, it seems like a save situation, but uh, uh, Aaron Loop had started a fire and uh, Cecil came in and threw some gasoline on it. And now rookie Miguel Castro got the first save of the season for the for the Blue Jays. Matt Dodge has been covering this uh, story for BaseballHQ.com. So what's the play here? Well, I, I was lucky enough to see that game. And, and yeah, my take is here that Gibbons didn't like what he saw with uh, Cecil's velocity. 
Um, he was having trouble getting his fastball over 89 miles an hour, and his, and his command wasn't very good. He walked and he hit a batter, and it all, like you said, contributed to a Yankee win. He looked better in the outing last night in a setup rule during which he whiffed two and had his fastball up to 92 miles an hour. I think fantasy owners should remember that Cecil battered rotator cuff tendonitis all spring, and he's not likely where he wants to be yet, uh, so I sure wouldn't recommend dumping him here yet. And that said, this Castro kid has a great arm. He's been cool under pressure in the early going. He's got, he's got three high leverage appearances, two scoreless innings, upper nineties velocity, and he hasn't walked anyone. And he's right-handed, which so many managers seem to love in a closer role. I'm a Cecil owner, but I've already handcuffed him to Castro, and I'd certainly advise this as an insurance policy. Uh, closing is a lot of pressure to put on a kid with just A-ball experience, but he's been nailed so far, and if Cecil's problems persist, I'm pretty sure Castro looks like the next, the next best bet right now. Uh, Joe Sheehan, uh, our mutual friend from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, uh, covered this story as well. And what he pointed out was the, the culprit here really is John Gibbons. He takes Cecil, tells him you won't come in until the ninth inning. And then in the very first game of the season, he calls him in in the eighth inning, bases loaded, uh, only one out. And, uh, and, and, uh, it was pouring rain by that time, very cold, rainy night. So he's got to throw a wet baseball with four minutes of, of warming up because he wasn't given enough time. All of this looks like a really bad managerial decision. And paradoxically or ironically, that might be good news for Castro because Gibbons is not going to be likely to, to admit his own mistake, which, uh, it certainly was. And really Cecil was unlucky. You watched the game, right? And I mean, he, he bounced that one that really, uh, Russell Martin should have stopped to prevent the first run from scoring. Then he, he got a perfect double play ball and he, he, it hit him on the wrist and bounced away from Reyes. So, all in all, it looks like Cecil's probably getting the short end of the stick here, but it looks very likely that he's going to have to hold on to that short end of the stick, especially if Castro continues to do well. Yeah, it's an interesting situation, and I'm, I'm pretty much in agreement with, with what you've talked about and what Joe said here. Um, it really seemed like uh, Gibbons made a quick decision there, um, and... Uh, anything can happen there. Um, I still favored, if you put a gun to my head, I still favor Cecil as the closer, given his experience and his stuff. Um, the injury is a wild card. Uh, hook those two together if you can, though, Castro and Cecil. And if you can't, I mean, Castro's going to be an effective pitcher, I think, especially in uh, American League-only formats where you need to have some of those good, solid relievers. The kid can really bring it. And uh, the only uh, problem I have with Brett Cecil, I don't. I think, as I said, I think he got screwed here. But uh, the one problem that really has me a little worried is rotator cuff problems. Any kind of rotator cuff problem is too, is, is a, a worrisome sign for me, Jock. Yeah, I would agree, uh, PD. The only thing, uh, the only thing keeping me, uh, in the Cecil camp right now is that he seems to be pitching through it. And again, his velocity did creep up that second start. Meanwhile, also in the American League East in New York, the Yankees' closer situation has become interesting. The preseason favorite, of course, was Dellen Batances on the heels of a fantastic year last year, but now he's apparently been relegated to sharing the closer job with Andrew Miller, the left-hander in the bullpen. Doug Dennis, our bullpen buyer's guide columnist, had some observations about this story. How do you see this playing out, Jock? Well, entering the season, I mean, this was always a situation where Baseball HQ projected uh, Batances to get two-thirds of the saves, and Andrew Miller, his left-handed counterpart, who was just acquired by the Yankees to get one-third. Um, if someone was going to run with the job, it was going to be Batances because of the, his right-handedness and because probably Girardi's relationship. But the wild card in all this has been Batances' rough spring. Um, um, obviously, everyone knows what he did in 2014. 
Um, but this this March, his velocity has been erratic. His strikeouts are down. It's still more than one an inning. But the biggest issue has been his control and his command. He's walked almost a batter an inning since the season began, uh, including his one regular season appearance this past week uh, to date where he walked two but managed to escape without allowing a run. It doesn't seem like an injury is in play here because he's still throwing uh, mid-90s, upper-90s, and his velocity is creeping up after being down for most of the spring. But it's really not surprising that, that manager Joe Girardi will not name a full-time closer yet uh, because he's got Miller, and Miller has been terrific uh, all spring and, and getting that first save. Now, Jock, you said you don't think that there's an injury in play here, but I, I'm going to say that I think maybe there's there's some kind of problem going on there. Uh, last year, he was at 2.4 walks per nine innings. This year, I know it's early, but his walk uh, rate has been very high, as you mentioned, and Sometimes, or a lot of times, the loss of fastball command is an indication that there's something going on with a pitcher's elbow. So I'm not going to say that is the case, but I will say this. I won't be surprised if sooner or later somebody says, hey, you know, remember Dellen Batances? Tommy John coming. No, I agree with you, Petey. You certainly can't rule it out. Uh, my take simply on this right now is just based on his velocity. Uh, it's certainly not an injury, but you may well be right. And, and it may be something that's long, long term and, and happening gradually. Okay, so you mentioned Andrew Miller. Tell us more. Well, Miller had a great uh, 2014. Um, he picked up. He picked up right where he left off. And the interesting thing about Miller again is that he's left-handed. And prior to 2014, he had a terrible control record. Uh, he was averaging four or five walks a game, and something clicked. But uh, so far to date, uh, nothing going on there. So um, if if Patances doesn't come around. Um, Miller is going to be the guy. Uh, Doug Dennis noted in his piece that the problem for fantasy owners here is that this situation could cap save totals as long as Batances and Miller share that role. Um, but right now, until Batances uh, gets his control uh, under control, so to speak, uh, Miller's going to be the guy. And Miller hasn't uh, been too bad against uh, right-handed hitters over his career. His numbers are actually pretty good. Uh, in fact, his uh, opposition uh, uh, OPS is better against right-handers than it is against left-handers, and very good against both, I should say. But he has consistently been really good against right-handed pitching, so I don't think that's going to be a worry for anybody. Uh, another big American League story this past week, of course, uh, another PED uh, situation. Irvin Santana of the Twins got an 80-day suspension for testing positive for a steroid. Uh, Jock, this is just brutal for the Twins. Yeah, it really is. Uh, they were looking like a last-place club in the AL Central anyway, but... but uh... Um, it, it, they just inked, in, inked into a four-year, $55 million contract during the offseason. Obviously, they were hoping that Santana and Phil Hughes could reasonably front a real sketchy rotation while they, while they continued to rebuild. And then to make matters worse, you have Ricky Nolasco flying back to Minnesota for an MRI immediately after getting shelled in his first start. They don't have anybody really immediately to, um, uh, to come in and, and replace these guys. Bob Berger looked at the situation in playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com. So what do you think Minnesota's plan is going to be now? And, and are there any obvious fantasy opportunities that are going to spring up amongst the uh, pitching staff in Minnesota? Well, Mike Pelfrey is going to replace Santana. And he had a pretty good spring. He, he only gave up two earned runs in about 16 innings. But uh, Pelfrey's 31 now. He used to be a prospect a long time ago. He hasn't returned any positive uh, five by five value since 2010. He's never had a a, a dominance rate or a, a strikeouts per nine over over six strikeouts per nine. 
And he's only had one expected ERA under 4.3 during his entire career. Uh, Bob suggests that you let others speculate, and I would agree with him. Um, after that, you have Trevor May, who's down in the minors. Uh, lots of strikeouts, but poor control and lots of uh, lots of balls in the air. Alex Meyer is their big pitching prospect, uh, but he needs to to stop walking hitters and stay healthy now. He's 25, and and he still hasn't gotten much better at this. Uh, you got Jose Barrios at uh, at Double A if they decide to rush him. Um, Minnesota and Target Field is a great park for pitchers if they can find some decent candidates. Phil Hughes proved this last year, but so far those have been elusive for the Twins. Yeah, keep your eye open. I think Alex Myers, the the obvious name here, but Barrios, I agree with you. If they push him a, a little faster, given the park situation in, uh, in the American League Central in general, you also get a chance to pitch in Detroit quite a bit, a chance to pitch in Kansas City quite a bit. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a good division for pitchers, but if Jose Barrios gets called up, and it's not going to cost you too much. Maybe uh, give them a look, but uh, don't commit yourself. Uh, Jock in Tampa Bay, the Rays got hit with the injury bug in the first week. James Loney, their first baseman, got a mild oblique strain. And John Jaso, I don't think he's on the DL yet as we speak, but he's reportedly close to it. He hurt his wrist sliding into second. Matt Dodge looked at this whole situation in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So what do we know about the Tampa Bay lineup over the near term? Dykstra, is uh, he's a left-handed hitter. Uh, he's 27 years old. He did real well in a, in a hitter's environment at uh, AAA Las Vegas last year. Um, he's a little contact challenge. He's not going to get you a good batting average. He might hit a few home runs, but he's 27 years old. Um, he's probably only a placeholder for uh, for Loney as long as he's out. Um Jaso is 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 a little more interesting in that uh, um, he and and actually has been put on the DL just before you called. I checked uh, Roto World just to make sure, and and lo and behold, um, that entry just popped up first. Um, David DeJesus and Brandon Geyer are expected to share Jaso's spot. Uh, neither of these guys again are are much more than place placeholders. Um, DeJesus offers above average speed, uh, maybe a two sixty batting average. Um, uh, Geyer, uh, uh, also has, has decent speed and you know, Tampa Bay is going to run because they're not going to score many runs. Um, not a great situation if you're looking for somebody who you can, who will, who will last in your offensive lineup fantasy wise. Uh, just a word to the warning, uh, uh, David DeJesus in most leagues, 20-game qualifi- qualification leagues, is a DH only, so you can't plop him in there to replace uh, anybody in your roster except for another DH, depending on your league rules, of course. Uh, finally, Jock in Baltimore, Ubaldo Jimenez, of the big contract and poor performance, won the number five spot in the Orioles' rotation, and in the pro- in the in the uh, process... Uh, pushed Kevin Gausman back into the bullpen. Uh, Matt Dodge, again, looking at this in playing time today. What's the outlook in Baltimore for pitching? Yeah, I think you called this. You're, you're spot on right here. I mean, Jimenez signed that big contract with Baltimore. He was terrible last year. He's been volatile throughout his career. He's had spurts of excellence, followed by spurts of just being god-awful. Um, and uh, they are trying, essentially, Baltimore to get something out of that contract. He had a pretty good spring. He showed some signs of improvement, um, and and Gausman had a rough spring. He was working on some stuff very clearly, but he he's he has more upside than a, than Ubaldo does here. Um, maybe Ubaldo comes back, who knows? But but Gausman will eventually be in the rotation uh, sometime this year, as either Jimenez goes down or or the or the Orioles get more injuries. Um, 
Gaussman's BPV and command increased each month during 2014. Those skills are definitely going to play in the Baltimore rotation at some point soon. And also, uh, the uh, Orioles are quite concerned about keeping Gaussman's innings down. I know they uh, reportedly kept him out of a lot of spring training. He didn't have as many innings as you might have expected. Uh, because they they are trying to keep him ready to go for this entire season because they assume, and I think quite rightly they should, that they're going to be a competitor in the American League East and Gausman figures in those plans. So I think there might be an element here where they're just keeping Gausman in the bullpen for the first month or, or so just to keep his innings down so that when they do decide to commit to him in the rotation, he's not going to immediately leap up and go to 190 innings or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, he's a 24-year-old. He's still getting his feet wet. Uh, at, at the very best, you want to preserve him and keep him available for that late season charge. Okay, Jock, appreciate the updates. Uh, thanks very much. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, sounds good. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and, of course, our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our regular Friday Talk with Todd, it's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the Take me out with the HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed in the 2015 fantasy baseball season. Like these features, Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column has part three of his mega rebuild story in his XFL franchise. In Facts and Flukes player validation, Brian Rudd looks at Steven Strasburg, Michael Kadire, and more. And Dr. HQ Rick Wilton looks at Joe Nathan, Matt Kane, and other players hit by injury. Plus, we have all the usual great stuff. It's refreshed every day to give you fantasy baseball intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be back, Patrick. I understand finally you're back at home. It must be uh, really good to be back there even more. Oh, yeah. I uh, I think it's home anyway. It looks like home, but without the snow. That's right, so yeah. So I'm pretty sure that I'm home. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a long 11 days in Vegas and a long march out in general. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's nice to be back as much as fun as it was to see some people and do some cool things. Uh, yeah, there's nothing like, you know, my old comfortable bed and, and everything that goes with it. I know it's early going, uh, it's kind of borders on whimsical to talk about how we're doing in our league so far, but how are you doing in your league so far? I don't know. I don't check yet. I do. I just follow injuries and that sort of thing. So I, I haven't been hit with a huge number of the major injuries other than taking some injury risk on some players going in. So, you know, so, so far so good. Haven't, uh, haven't had to get into the closer carousel and didn't lose any of the starting pitchers that went down. So... I think we're doing okay. And when will you start looking at how the standings are shaping up to start to your in-season tactical planning? I will probably, I mean, I'll have to peek on Sunday when I do fab just because I have to go to the sites. Um, I actually tweeted out this week, it was it was a joke, that I um, I said something like, um, I'm, re- I'm only looking at the uh, 
I'm looking at the live standings just to get used to it for later in the season. I actually wasn't even looking at it, but you know, I'll I'll tweet out jokes just for a laugh, and people don't have to really know what's going on. But um, I'll look at the standings on Sunday. Some of it mainly because sometimes Fab bids. Uh, oftentimes tiebreakers are broken by standings. So sometimes you have to know what other people, what other teams want. And if you, if you're in contention, uh, for the same position, the same sort of statistic with another team, you, you might need to know where they are in the standings to up or lower your bid a bit. So by, uh, by default, I'll have to look on Sunday. Uh, you're talking about fab bidding. It's, uh, an interesting topic for you. I know because at Masters Ball, you're doing a, a lot of uh, fab reporting on various experts, leagues, tout and labor. Uh, when you look at the fab results, especially in the early going, Todd, what exactly are you looking for? Actually, you know what? I'm not, I'm looking less at the actual results and more of things that I can glean from the results as far, you know, I'm not, I don't care that this player went for this much, that sort of thing. I try to glean some sort of tidbits about the teams and what they're looking for and that sort of thing. We put the first one up, the, the, tab, the Tout Wars report went up on Masters Ball a couple of days ago. I'll be putting the Labor one up a little bit later today. Got delayed over the weekend and these reports are just monsters, you can, as you can imagine, with all the, all the bids that went on, especially Labor because it drafted early March. So they had a bunch of moves that they needed to do. So, but, but to answer the question, um, as an example, what I'll do is I'll look at the, uh, what teams are looking for starting pitching and what teams are looking for closers and what teams are looking for speed, maybe what teams are looking for middle infielders. And if I happen to have a surplus in that area, the teams that, you know, lost the bidding, it's not for sure because sometimes they're just bidding on talent. But if they lost a bid on, you know, they bid on a few starting pitchers and didn't happen to get one, you know, if I have an excess of starting pitching for whatever reason, you know, I may drop them a line and, and see, uh, you know, I know, you know, it looks like from the fab bidding that you're, you could use an extra starter, you know, what, what, what you have to spare or, or look at their roster, see what matches. So I think you can use it for early season trading. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, the whole patience argument. Yeah, you got to be patient on your players, but you also have to look to improve your team any which way you can. I think that's an interesting point to make that uh, a lot of guys, when they look at the fab results, just glance down the list, see who they got, first of all, then kind of look around. If they maybe got beat out for a player, they'll look to see who got them and just to uh, punish themselves by saying, oh, if only I'd bid that one extra dollar or those three extra dollars or whatever. But I, I think the more interesting possibilities are looking at uh, who bid on whom how and and how much, and also what they put in for their contingency bidding. Most uh, most online fantasy baseball manager sites allow you to put in multiple bids on a player. If I don't get A, I'll take B. If I don't get B, I'll take C, and so forth. They have different rules for how they fill those requests. But the point is, if you look at uh, uh, um, all your opponents and and all the people they bid on, including their contingencies, it gives you a real good picture of where they really thought they needed some help versus where, uh, you know, you put in a bid on, uh, say, Jason Grilly, even though they've already got two closers because they think maybe I'll get lucky and, and land a third closer, which helps me out, but I'm not really that interested. Exactly. And, and, and the Masters Ball, one of the things we do, and that's what, you know, what takes me so long, is we list every single bid. We list all the contingencies and, and even, even Tout Wars, which uses Vickery, will list the winning, will list the actual bid amount along with the winning, you know, how much it was reduced by Vickery just to get an idea, you know, what, what owners might be willing to spend, you know, on the top end to get the player. So, uh, and, and, you know, there was some pretty heavy bidding in the NL Tout Wars for Archie Bradley. 
Uh, so we get to see people are willing to spend almost 50% of their budget on a starting pitcher, you know, on a rookie starting pitcher in a bad ballpark in the National League. So it was kind of interesting to see that, the, you know, a lot of teams are willing to spend, I guess, between 33 and 45% of their budget on, on a player of this nature, which kind of, you know, it tells, it tells me in that, I'm in this league. It tells me that if I want a starting pitcher early in the season, I better be willing to pony up. Trevor Cahill went for, uh, 27 or, Phil Hurts bid 32 and again a third of the budget so it tells me in this league if I want a starting pitcher that in the next couple of weeks I better be willing to pay for it um, actually that's the other you know sort of ancillary uh, scanning that I do is what it takes to get certain positions this is more in the high stakes arena necessarily than than the, the tout wars and labor one of the you know I might not be interested in a closer or in a starting pitcher the first couple of weeks but I'd like to know in my league what it's going to take to secure, you know, a player of a, of a particular ilk. So that's sort of the other thing I'll do is not so much general, you know, Jim Johnson went for this much, but, you know, a speculative closer went for this much sort of thing. And something that popped into my mind that I do when I look at these lists is there's certain players in your league that you know have maybe a, a, are are more diligent or or have a greater uh, run of success over the years at picking players out of the free agent pool. I'm very curious to see who those who those owners are drafting and have in their contingency list because I'm going to put an asterisk beside those pitchers or hitters for the rest of the year because if you know Joe Bloggs, who's a really good free agent finder put a bid in on him early in the year, this is somebody I think maybe I should be keeping an eye on. Especially in today's game, there's a fine line between using analysis to make a bid and just making a bid because the player's there. My favorite example of this, and uh, my the, uh, Masters Ball managing co-partner Brian Walton uh, was the one who reminded me of this. Uh, a few weeks into the season last year, there were two starting pitchers in the National League that came up for bid the same week. It was uh, Anthony DiScalfini and some guy named Jacob DeGrom, and they uh, they both went for the exact same money. I think it was like $22. And at the time, who knew? You know, right. Who knew which one of the guys was going to lead a lot of teams to a championship, and who knew which was the guy whose name was going to be mispronounced you know, for the rest of the season and even early this year? We just, we just didn't know. And at the time, I think DiScalfini actually probably had a better pedigree than DeGrom. And we all know that, you know, DeGrom almost went on to win the Cy Young. So, you know, did the person who picked DeGrom know it? Or was it just dumb luck that, you know, maybe he wanted DiScalfini and he didn't get him? So um, I think I'm mispronouncing his name. I, I think it's DiScalfini. But anyway, the point being, uh, you know, you have to be somewhat careful with that. But yet, you're right, there's some people that just seem to have a knack. And if they have a continual knack, it's not a knack, it's a skill. So uh, I do think that some people might out there may have picked Degrom because of his pedigree and having watched him and and known about him over over uh, DiSclafini, but uh, I guarantee some people out there just put the same amount on both and whichever one I get, I get. That does happen. I'm more interested in the down ballot sort of names that I see when somebody puts in six or seven uh, bids, which I, uh, which is a sign of somebody who's really doing his uh, due diligence. I think uh, he could just be throwing a lot of crap at the wall and seeing what, what what part of it sticks. But if I see somebody's put in a bid on four or five or six contingency bids, I'm going to be a little more curious about those four or five guys because chances are 
uh, none of them is going to end up getting drafted to his team because he's going to get somebody higher up the list. I'm curious about who else is on that list. Right, and I'll take it a little a step further. No, I mean every I, you can't put everybody in this class, but we all know people that are particularly tuned into a, a team, whether they're you know a big fan of the team or or right for the team or or, or something to that effect. Sure. Now, I'm not saying this is a, a homerism effect, but a, a, a player that's more in tune would seem to have more of an idea of what the player is, good or bad. So I'll, you know, I'll use Brian as an example again, who writes for the uh, the Fox Sports writes for St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, you know, if Brian bids on a Cardinal, it's not because he's a fan; it's because he knows something about that player, and I think that that's a, that's a player that I'd like to you know at least look at in some other leagues. And if he doesn't bid on one. I think that he might have a fear for that player. I think we can put, you know, our friend Jason Collette in that group with, with Tampa Bay. Right. So again, it's not homerism, but it's just familiarity with the team and they're good players. They're not going to let their bias influence who they pick up. So I think there's some people in your league that you might be able to just, you know, have a feeling for in, the, in that nature. Uh, so I, it can't happen all the time, but if it does occur, I think it, you, you sort of need to pay attention to that. Similarly, some uh, owners in most leagues are a little more attuned to prospects than others, and, and you want to keep your eye peeled if the prospect guy or the prospect guys in your league uh, have somebody down at the bottom of their contingency list as somebody that is worth looking at because the prospect guys like this guy, and, and therefore I should be interested. Absolutely. Any edge like that one can find uh, in this information era where everybody seems to have a certain base light of information, anything you can get over and above that can give you the edge that you need. It, it all goes into that part of uh, fantasy strategy that we've talked about over the years, which is the information about the players, the information about projections, the information about uh, how to manage budgets and so forth has become pretty widespread. And the advantage that used to accrue to people who had an understanding of it that was superior to other people's has diminished uh, proportionally. And now we're talking more about playing against the guys in your league specifically rather than the, the higher level theorizing about uh, those kinds of uh, how do I manage my budget type issues and seeing who they wanted to draft, seeing who they did draft is something that gives you a pretty decent insight into how they play and who they like, what kind of players they like. Not to pimp the fab reports, you know, even more, but, uh, we, we have all the information there and, um, We've talked about this in, in various and sundry formats. It, it fascinates me looking at these reports how so many of these players have got individual bids, both in the winning bid and in the contingencies. And this just speaks towards, you know, I like player A more than you like player A and you like player B more than I like player B. And we each bid, you know, on the player that we like and we don't bid on the other and we each get them. It's just the difference in opinion in, in player and performance and playing time and skills and all that sort of stuff. It just, it's, it's exaggerated, uh, during the fab. You can just see the bid, you know, you can see certain players just have no, and there can be two players at the same position. And yet they don't, one of the players, you know, I didn't bid on the other player at the same position. I didn't want him. Uh, it's, it's just kind of, it, it, it's, it's more than just fascinates me. I think you can use this, uh, in trade talks, realizing that, we have different opinions, so instead of just offering you Smith and I want Jones, uh, maybe, you know, and you accept the trade because it's fair, but maybe you would have rather had Adams and, you know, for whatever reason didn't ask me for Adams instead, and I would have preferred you to take Adams. Yeah. So on my end, 
I should always, you know, offer a, a choice. And on your end, if you prefer another player, you should, you know, ask for it. And if I, you need just, we have different opinions. Unless you ask, you don't know. So this is all sort of corroborated by the data on the fab, but just the difference of opinion on players is just, it's just so vast between the uh, participants in the league. Before we leave the whole area of fab, Todd, where are you on the uh, two concepts that are spend it all early or spend aggressively early versus hoard it for late debate? I do a, a take on the, on the, on the, uh, my little analysis on each of these leagues. And in the league that I'm in, the NL, the NL Tout Wars, there was huge bidding on Alchie Bradley, who became available, uh, after the season because of the, of course, the trade of Trevor Cahill, uh, opening it up. And there were four, there, let's see, there's one, two, three, four, five owners that were willing to spend over thir- at least $30 and up to $44 of $100 on Archie Bradley. And in the notes, I applauded them for that. Um, I, I don't think there's any waiting for the, the, the deadline anymore. Not so much because you're not sure if there's going to be a guy traded, but more so because there's just such, there's so few chances in season now to get some help that when one does present itself, I think you have to take advantage. And, you know, this, this is Archie Bradley, a rookie pitcher pitching in a, in a hitter's park. And, you know, it's, and yet people are willing to spend almost half of their fab budget to, you know, to add him as their fifth, sixth, seventh starter or whatever. That, to me, that speaks more towards the desperation of finding pitching than it does towards the, uh, you know, the expectation that Archie Bradley makes a big difference. I didn't happen to need pitching, so I wasn't in on this particular bidding. Uh, but, you know, had I needed pitching, I would have been right. I don't know that I would have gone as much as they did. I would have been in the, uh, in the twenties probably. But, you know, it's, it's, I, I applaud those that are aggressive early. And not only that, if you're going to spend, spend it and get the player because the worst thing you want to do is just nickel and diamond, spend a little bit here, a little bit there. So not only are you out of the running for the hammer at the deadline, you really didn't even get good, any good players until the deadline. So, you know, if you, if you're going to bid, get a couple of difference makers early and then nickel and dime it because you have to, but at least you got those difference makers for four, five, maybe in this case, almost six months. I think that's a key part that uh, people need to keep in mind is that, yes, it's nice, especially in single league leagues where you can take advantage of a guy crossing leagues. Uh, I think of Mark Teixeira a few years ago when he did that. He actually, I know of leagues where that was enough to swing the balance of the league. But for the most part, you're a lot better off getting a guy in April than you are getting him in September just because he's got five extra months to put stats on the board for you, and that has value. And then the the flip side of that, I know people say, yeah, but what if I, what if I bid forty five dollars on Archie Bradley and he stinks and I have to cut him? Well, yeah, that's part of the risk, but it's not like you're losing auction money, and I and I think people have to really. Um, differentiate those two concepts the auction money you can't waste in keeper leagues or or in redraft leagues but the fab is kind of a little looser as far as what it's actually worth to you because in most years you know you're filling your spots in you're patching in your and you're band-aiding here and there it's relatively rare to get a shot at an impact player like a potential Archie Bradley or Jason Grilly in this last fab period he all of a sudden goes from being kind of a, sh- a schlemiel in in the bullpen in a bad team to stepping up maybe getting 30 saves that's huge and, and uh, so you why wouldn't you throw a lot of money at it right and um you know gr- you know talking Grilly I was just took a look he was not bid on 
you know, he he was on a reserve roster in the National League, but in the two mixed leagues, you know, he went for a, a pretty good a, a pretty good penny. The uh, there's there's two tout there's a draft in the auction, and in the auction he went for over forty dollars, and there were three team four teams bidding at least thirty seven of their of their hundred units, and he didn't go quite as much in the draft. He, it only took uh, seventeen, but he he did. Uh, the, the initial bid we used Vickery was 27. So people were willing to spend a quarter to a half of their budget. And, you know, I, I kind of, you know, tongue in cheek implied that, that Bradley isn't the greatest of starting pitchers. Here you've got an, an injury prone closer on, well, you're not going to know it after the first series, but on a, on a lesser team, so to speak. And yet people are willing to spend, you know, a great deal of their budget. Now, sort of to put things in context. Uh, Tout Wars has two sort of quirks that might, you know, explain a little bit of the bidding. And the first being you can trade for Fab. So, you know, these guys that are spending out the, out the, out the yin yang to get the guys early, who's to say that you don't trade for some more Fab? And the second being, uh, we offer a rebate for players that are put on the DL. So if you, if you, you know, if a major player gets hurt, if a $20, $25 player gets hurt and is out for the season, you can get that fab rebate rebated back. It's prorated according to when it occurs during the season, but you know that's still a pretty nice chunk of change. So I mean, there are going to be people that are going into the deadline with over a hundred dollars of fab just because they didn't spend a whole lot and and they got one of their guys hurt. So you know that's something to keep in mind too. That uh, and plus we do use Vickery in the in the tout wars, so you you can. And I I know for a couple people mentioned to me. That they didn't expect to spend nearly what they ended up spending with Vickery. Um, but, you know, even with Vickery, the number you put down, you can't just put down a high number and say, you know, I, I, I assume, I assume we'll get him for less. You better be willing to pay that number. Uh, or else you, you might end up paying that number like a couple of the guys did. Yeah, and for uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the Vickery uh, auction method, it's a blind auction like most fab bidding is, but instead of paying what you bid, you pay what the what the second place bidder bid plus $1. So uh, it it more accurately emulates what might have happened had there been an actual auction because nobody would bid 41 if the previous bid was 21. And so they just back it off to 22 and say you win the auction by paying a, a dollar more than second place. But that does sometimes encourage people, especially when they're new at it, Todd, to uh, to think, well, I'll bid 90 because, you know, that way I know I'll get them and, and the highest bid behind me is going to be 20, so I'll still only pay 21. And that, that works out fine until two people think of it. <laughs> and then, you know, they're both bidding 90 so or 90, 91 or whatever, and that's what it ends up costing. It, and I've been doing this for three or four years it did happen one year. I don't remember the year. I can't give you the exact example. Uh, this time next year, I'll look it up. So I'll have it. I'll have it when we talk about okay. it. Okay. But um, I, yeah, it, you know, it, like you said, it only takes two. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, talking with Todd uh, Todd Zola, and uh, I'm Patrick David. And Todd, uh, for the first time in my life, I'm going to be playing daily fantasy baseball. Uh, the Tout Wars has arranged a kind of private league. Uh, Ray Murphy's going to be talking more about this in Master Notes later in the show. And so it's, uh, I think, 34, 35 guys and women now in, who are uh, Tout Wars experts, and it's a, it's a closed league, and we, we are uh, playing on a single night a week, Friday night every week. I've never played daily fantasy baseball before, Todd, so in general, how should I be approaching this? Well, welcome to the dark side. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the contest, I actually had a little hand in, 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 in putting it together because I've been 
playing daily myself for, for several years, and it's a neat little thing that they're doing. We're having weekly contests where there's a, a prize for that week, and I think there's five uh, four-week mini contests where the top three from top three finishes over that four-week period will get to play in a grand championship, uh, not quite for the million dollars that that FanDuel's giving out for their regular contest, a little little bit less than that. But they're get they're they're giving us a nice little prize for the grand champion, which will be crowned sometime in August. And you know everybody will be able to follow our teams, and we'll be using social media to you know tweet out our rosters and and that sort of thing. So hopefully our our audience can sweat can sweat along with us, as they say. Uh, but getting into it at the beginning, the um, this is it's sort of an interesting number because you need to win a tournament, but it's you're not trying to beat ten thousand or a hundred thousand people like in a lot of these tournaments. Uh, at this point, I think you're right. There's only thirty or thirty-two. That, you know, we'll, we'll grow it over the course of the season and and get more of the potential sixty-five touts in it. But you still have to beat thirty-two people, which means you still need to differentiate yourself from the crowd somewhere. You don't have to be a complete contrarian, but you do need one or two picks that are probably owned by very few people, and you have to have them do well, obviously, uh, in order in order to win a tournament of this nature. You can't play it completely safe. So that would be the first suggestion: is to try to try to find a player in that in, that that's going that happens to be tonight that uh, that that's going tonight that that you feel might be an under-the-radar player for whatever reason that's going to do well, and hopefully that'll be the player that separates you, you know, and then you have a bunch of players that everybody has, but this one player separates you and, and, and gets you the victory. Um, you know, you, there's, you can't be totally goofy with the entire roster. Sometimes you need to be to, to beat 1,000 people, but to beat 30, uh, you know, play it safe, Get the pitcher that's going to, you know, do the job for you. And then I w- that's what I would do anyway. And then I'm going to look for a hitter or two that I feel, be it matchup, be it a last-minute announcement that might not everybody else may be a- akin to, a player hitting higher in the order, uh, that sort of thing that, that not a lot of people might have that night. And that should be the difference. When you say uh, maybe go for a player that you think is is not going to be uh, on a lot of rosters because you do need to differentiate yourself in a closed competition, uh, is that generally speaking going to be a hitter, or should I be looking for a pitcher also? the The rule of thumb previous is to win tournaments. You need to spend uh, you know less money on a on a pitcher that has a great matchup. So if we were you know if we were facing a thousand people, that might be the the advice, but you're, we're only facing 30 or 35 or in that somewhere in that range. So at least I'm not going to go totally under the radar with my pitcher. Um, I mean, maybe there's one out there. I haven't actually haven't haven't looked at the at the uh, actual numbers yet. Um, but if if there's a, a pitcher that is lesser priced that I think has a fantastic matchup, then I will go with that pitcher. But I'm not going to force it. I'm going to I'm going to find the pitcher who I don't even sure if I'm going to use bang for the buck. I think because because the other thing, early in the season, the prices haven't caught up to a lot of the players' talent level yet. There's a lot of Devon Travis's and Jace Petersons and and players out there that won the job at the end of the you know Jake Lamb that won the job in spring training. So their prices are based on their history. And their history isn't, you know, their talent right now is better than their history. So yeah. you can backfill 
with a lot of these cheaper players uh and then you know use a more expensive pitcher uh at least early in the season for this for this particular contest maybe once maybe once the you know the, the our fellow touts start playing a little more i mean let's be honest a lot of these like yourself a lot of these guys haven't played very much so i have played so i'm probably actually going to play it fairly safe figuring that you know people out there maybe aren't as akin or tuned into how to put a lineup in but once you guys jump the curve which i know you will i may then have to get a little more creative with my own lineup so the first couple i'm probably going to play it a little bit safer and you know just try to get as you know get the safe points and again look for one or two differentiating players uh look for a guy with a platoon edge that you know somebody else might not uh realizes in the lineup or 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 feel if they're just looking at their you know their yearly numbers they don't realize that you, there's a big platoon edge that you get, and that's one way to uh, to get the better return of investment uh, because a lot of the salaries are based on year long year long uh, performance. And if a player has an edge platoon wise left handedness that night, uh, his expectation is better than his year long expectation because he has the handedness edge, and therefore should return a bigger bang for the buck. Things like that. Also, there are park advantages and uh, weather advantages and those kind of things to look for. I've been doing a little bit of research on it. I, I was listening to uh, one of the uh, fantasy baseball shows on Sirius XM where they had an interesting conversation where one of the uh, experts who was speaking, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was, made what I thought was an interesting point. It's awfully tempting to look for uh, hitters who are going to be up against really quite poor starting pitchers. It seems, in fact, it seems like an obvious thing to do. Then he made the case if the pitcher's bad enough, you might not you might not get that many at bats against him because he'll be out of the game after three innings, you know, and then you're going to be dealing possibly with a bullpen that's quite a bit better than the than the starting pitcher was, and you've kind of shot yourself in the foot. Uh, d- does that make sense to you? Does it does it seem like uh, something to be thinking about? Yes and no. Um, assuming that the player had something to do with getting that pitcher out of the game, he's still going to return more on that particular night than uh than the average than what he's priced for now there you know there you're talking about you know the 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 three home run game that uh that that a couple players have already got you know that Adrian Gonzalez got this year already that you know the three home run game as opposed to a 10 run inning where the pitcher gets knocked out i think you still want to go against poor pitching uh cuz quite frankly pitchers aren't going that long into games anyway a lot of the, even you know Clayton Kershaw only went 6 innings you know the best pitchers aren't going that far into a game anyway, so you're going to be running into bullpens at least early in the season, especially in the cold weather. Uh, you know, you know, Matt Harvey didn't go all that long. The, you know, that sort of thing. So I I thought about that myself, and it, it's kind of a it's a good talking point, and almost everything is actually looked at nowadays in this DFS. So I'm sure there's a study out there that might answer it, but my gut says. I, I you know I I'd, I'd rather go up against a bad pitcher and get what I can in my two at bats and then deal with the bullpen than I would you know dealing with a better pitcher for four or five at bats because if you're if it's a blowout game who's to say you get the best bullpen either you're gonna put the mop up guy in true you know you you're gonna you know put the take one for the team sort of guy in as well and you know a f- pitcher gets knocked out after three innings giving up five runs. May score twelve runs that day just because they're you know they're facing lesser bullpen players too. So, um, 
I know you look for an edge everywhere, but that's not one where I think I'm uh, I'm going. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, and our regular weekly talk with Todd, uh, Todd Zola, joining us. And Todd, I notice, uh, I know that you write for ESPN and do work behind the scenes with their projections departments and so forth, uh, but I saw something on the free side of ESPN, Daily Notes, uh, Todd Zola's Daily Notes. Uh, how, how is that working, and what are you looking for when you compile those notes? It's not just for daily games, right? Right. I'm now, uh, last year I was a contributor to Daily Notes, I'm now, uh, I'm in, in essence managing the daily notes for ESPN. And yeah, like you mentioned, it's, it's, uh, half of what I'm doing. This is on the free side. Uh, and I might not be writing them every day, but I'll be writing them, I think, more often than not. And basically we just go through the pitchers and we go through the hitters and we look for strong matchups. Now we are doing, uh, some site specific, uh, DFS insider tips. So we don't, we don't, focus too much on uh, a player and his price and the site and that sort of thing on the free side we we do that on the insider but you you know you can glean information from our notes about the pitchers and the hitters to use for DFS but we're also you know there's a great contingent especially on ESPN that players that play you know da- traditional fantasy with daily moves so we like to talk about uh lesser starting pitchers that you could stream in that day or if it's a head-to-head, a lot of head-to-head, so maybe there's an ace or a very good pitcher that might have not have the greatest of matchups. So especially later in the week, you know, we'll point out that you know, you know, Cole Hamels is a very good pitcher, but you know, tough matchup tonight. I didn't want to pick on not necessarily that's the truth tonight. I'm just first name that happened to come to my head. So the so the uh, the information I said is sort of a cross between. Uh, daily games and daily moves, uh, again, and the, and the insider, which, which it's, it's cost, cost some money. Um, the, uh, the information is much more tilted towards what you'll see, you know, that this is my pitcher of the day. This is my hitter of the day, uh, sort of thing. And uh, that tip sheet on ESPN Insider, uh, you are gearing to specific daily game sites because they all have different rules. Right there, uh, yeah. You'll find that there, there are subtleties in the scoring that make, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the pitching, getting a win more important on one site versus another, or uh, speed guys are more relevant on one side ver- uh, on one site versus another, and just the different sites adjust to pricing, right? Uh, adjust to the performance uh, more more quickly. There's there's sometimes we call it sharp pricing. Some sites have more sharp pricing than the others as well. So the same player uh, could be a, a strong play on one site, and a, I don't want to say bad play on another, but not a strong play on another site. So that sort of information uh, we we do want we do want to separate because a lot of times, like you just mentioned the radio, you'll just hear that you know so and so is a good a good play for tonight, but they might play one particular game and to them it's a good play but it might not be a good play to someone else who who might play another game right and that and that's kind of a carryover from every league that we've uh, all ever played in one of the first things that any expert will tell anybody who's just starting out is read the rules understand how the pricing works understand what the budget is understand how the scoring works and so forth because uh, from one site to another it's different and certainly moving from sort of traditional rotisserie even points leagues into the daily arena it's a different thing and it's really important that 
we understand what we're getting ourselves into if we want to compete effectively. Oh, absolutely. And then some sites, well, we're playing on FanDuel tonight for the, for the Tout Championship, so this is, this is moot, but there's some sites that allow you to, it's called Pivot, to, to change players. So uh, perhaps uh, there may be a late lineup switch and you can put a player in. But another interesting point being uh, you can follow the plight of your team, and if, if you're almost winning a, uh, a tournament and there's a late player that, you know, maybe he's a little bit of a consistent player and he's pretty good, but if you might need a little bit more, you can pivot towards a high-risk, high-reward player, perhaps sacrificing a place in the standings, but giving yourself a better chance if he goes off to win. So not on not necessarily on FanDuel, but on other sites, uh, they do allow you to do that sort of thing, and it's kind of interesting um, strategy-wise you know, it's not just set your lineup and leave, but, you know, some, some players are, you know, that 1030 Eastern game are making moves to try to help themselves based upon what happened earlier. It's interesting, isn't it? Back in the day, we made our moves once a week, and a lot of leagues, traditional yearly leagues, moved to uh, twice-weekly moves or even daily moves. And now, uh, in, in the daily game itself, we're moving to hourly moves. Uh, it's going to be down to the minute here one of these years. Well, you, you say that tongue in cheek, but I've you know, been at FSTA meetings, and that's you know, you, you, we can envision people sitting at their desk, watching a game, and deciding if this next pitch is going to be a slider or a screwball, and you know, hitting your keyboard and tallying up how many amount of the times you are right. That could be that could be where fantasy is going. Who knows? It sounds a little bit too involved for me. I, I, remember, <laughs> I, I remember reading a long time ago when daily games were just starting out that one of the big um, objections people had to staying in traditional format full year leagues was that they didn't like the idea of the commitment. And uh, I think that a lot of people misunderstood commitment to mean workload because uh, in just preparing for this first daily game, uh, Friday night game through the Tout Wars uh, daily game, uh, what I found is it's a lot of work. It's a lot more work, in fact, than I generally have to do in my year-long league because my year-long league, I'm, I've, I have to be patient. I have to monitor rather than act. And in this daily game, goodness, there's a lot of decisions to make and you have to look into parks and platoon advantages, as you mentioned, when you're trying to de decide between one player and another. Don't, don't get into daily games thinking you're getting off easy. Right. No, there's a, a huge time involvement. The, uh, you know, the slicker one is with a spreadsheet, you know, the, that, that might help at least, you know, I like what I like to say, you know, a spreadsheet never forgets, you know, you're not going to miss a player if everything's, you know, right down in front of you and, and you sort this and bing, bang, boom, there it is. Uh, but no, it, it's absolutely a, a time commitment, especially because people talk about the luck and I prefer to call it the variance of the daily game. And there's no doubt on a single day, the variance is huge. You know, when we play the, the, the year long, we're trying to guess how a player does over the course of the season. And we really don't care how he got there. Uh, on the daily game, you care how he got there and you're looking for reasons a player might do better than expected or better than his, you know, average on a single night. And that's what you're taught. That's where all that work comes in to look for the hand in this edge, look for the home away edges, look for against a weak pitcher, that sort of thing. Look for, you know, the weather, the, how the weather might impact the game. Man, they, they, you can, you can now go to sites and you know if the wind's blowing in or wind's blowing out. Uh, you can go as far as the umpires 
and know if is it a low ball umpire, is it a a strikeout umpire? Right. The, the the edges that you need to get on a day to day basis is huge, and to me this is why it's not you know I, I hate you know the word luck why it's not luck. Now you know are you right every time? No, you're probably not right every time, but just as you know the, the season long increases the sample for you know players for the water to find its level for the patience to pay off you know you just you know you played one daily game yeah you might be unlucky that day but the way to beat variance is with volume and whether that's volume over one day or volume over a season you know if you know the edges and if you play the edges over time you will come out ahead and that's you know to me that's where the skill comes in uh, and why, you know, why the daily game is the challenge of it. Unfortunately, you know, now I just, we talk about commitment. You know, there is a commitment <laughs> yeah. there. Um, you know, it depends on why you're playing. Cause the other big difference with daily games is, you know, let's face it. It's about winning money. Now the tout competition, I think people are going to get in it to, to beat their fellow touts. But, you know, I haven't, you know, there's a lot of people that play free fantasy for the year because of their buddies, it's their office, it's their college friends, it's their family, etc., and you're playing for bragging rights. You don't play for a whole lot of bragging rights in the daily game. To me, that's the bigger difference than the whole gambling element. And uh, as I said, Ray Murphy will have some more thoughts on this in Master Notes a little later on. Uh, Todd, it seems ironic to me that people uh, originally talked about getting into these daily games to avoid the commitment, but if they're actually good at it, the only way to make sure that your advantage in making the calculations is to be committed to making a lot of uh, picks uh, every night for the whole season, and you actually might have, end up doing way more work than you have than you would have had you just stuck with a regular uh, rotisserie league in the first place. Well, if good means you know winning a lot of money, absolutely. Right now, I said, and I actually talked about this a bit on the HQ forums uh, this past week because somebody. Uh, was saying one of the problems or, you know, the downfalls of this daily game is that you lose the camaraderie that, you know, nothing like the, the day of the auction and, and the draft and trade talks. And it, it's while, you know, on the surface that might appear to be true, there's a difference in that, you know, day to day basis. There's a, a you know, group of friends that get on and, and they use Twitter because that's what kids use nowadays. And they tweet about their teams and they tweet about their plight and they tweet about the umpire and, and, and this and that. And they literally are, you know, X miles away, but it's, they're in the same room watching the games together, discussing the games at night. And, you know, inevitably somebody from their little circle will be doing well and they all live vicariously through that person that night. And, you know, or you play a head to head against somebody and, and, you know, so you do have a little something on the line or I, you know, throughout the course of a day, I'm uh, G-chatting with two or three different people. We're bouncing lineup ideas off each other, you know, starting at you know, 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. So to me, there's just as much, if not more, interpersonal relationship with the daily than there is on the uh, on the traditional past the auction day, which is nothing, you know, nothing like the day of the auction. Right. But in, in the season, you know, I find myself talking more to people that play daily than I find myself talking, you know, league mates of traditional leagues. Nothing stopping you from going out and playing a daily game without enrolling in any of the websites. Get you and nine or ten of your buddies, if they're all in the same area, go to the bar to watch a game and agree what game you want to watch, and then have a draft right on the spot. Ron Chandler invented something like that 
five or six years ago. I don't know if you remember Quint Inning, he called it. Quint Inning, absolutely. And and you would sit there, and I think you drafted a truncated team, and there was certain scoring rules, but the game was over that night, just like daily fantasy baseball turned out to be. It's just he had a, a more complicated and different set of rules. But the idea that you can't have camaraderie because you're playing daily money games, I don't think it's true. It just depends on how you set it up. And it's a different mentality. I mean, that's you know the it's true the the demographics of the DFS are, are younger than you and I, uh, and it's just the way it is. You know, the, you know, music changes as generations get older, and you know, things change as as generations you know move on. And it, you know, it is what it is, and you can choose to uh, you know I don't want to say embrace it, but you can choose to get involved. Or you can choose not to, and um, I, I've actually embraced it. Um, you know, I, I will use that word. Other people, you know, accept it, <laughs> and other people not so much. Uh, you know, just go to the HQ forums, and we, you guys just set up a, a new forum just to talk about the daily games. I've been pretty busy this week. I want to go back there. There's, there's a number of points I want to make, and I hope to be able to go over the weekend and and uh, and make these points. But um, you know, just the fact that you folks have opted to set up a dedicated forum tells us, you know, that it's that it's here and it's here to stay. I think it is, but I still am not going to listen to hip hop music. Well, that makes two of us, but then <laughs> um, you know, I'm not I I barely watch TV now, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd, thanks a million for talking with us. Maybe next week we can go over what happened in week 1 of the Tout Daily Game. I'm looking forward to playing in it. It seems like it's going to be very interesting and a a new kind of challenge in thinking about the game so it should be interesting uh, again thanks very much we'll talk to you again in a week's time absolutely and for those listening i don't have the link handy but look look me up on twitter at todd zola and i'll be sure to tweet the link out to the to the actual competition so you guys can sweat along with your favorite tout wars uh hero <laughs> uh well said todd uh, todd zola writes for baseballhq.com for chandlerpark.com you heard about espn of course masters ball fantasyalarm.com wherever todd zola is writing you should be reading our commentaries are coming up next we're adding uh, pitcher matchups this week so stay tuned for that this is baseball hq radio <laughs> Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we'll have Ray Murphy and Master Notes, but now it's our pitcher matchup report returning for the 2015 season. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher in every starting matchup. The algorithms are based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from plus 5 to minus 5. Scores of 2 or higher are recommended pitchers, while scores below 0 
well, we'll just say they're best avoided. Here with this weekend's matchups is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Welcome to the first full slate of weekend games for the 2015 season. In this segment, we highlight some of the most appealing and some of the most appalling pitcher matchups slated for Saturday and Sunday. This weekend, many teams will use their fifth starters for the first time. 24 of the 60 pitchers scheduled are making their first starts of the season. As you would expect, it's far too early to recommend a ride on the rookie roller coaster. For example, in the American League on Saturday, Toronto's Aaron Sanchez makes his first Major League start with a matchup rating tied for the worst of the weekend at minus 225. Load your lineup with Orioles hitters against him at Camden Yards. Even the meager matchup rating of Baltimore's Ubaldo Jimenez at 090 is more than three matchup rating points higher. The National League features a mismatch and an even match worth pointing out for Saturday. Arizona's Archie Bradley could hardly have drawn a more daunting assignment for his Major League debut than the seemingly impossible task of hosting three-time Cy Young Award winner and reigning National League Most Viable Player Clayton Kershaw and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Kershaw carries a matchup rating of 214 into Chase Field against Bradley's minus 222. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the Giants' Madison Bumgarner and the Padres' James Shields should both perform well in the pitching paradise of San Diego's Petco Park. Bumgarner has a matchup rating of 234, and Shields is not far behind at 195. In the American League on Sunday, look for another pair of solid starts, albeit in the hitter's heaven of Chicago's U.S. Cellular Field. Chris Sale of the White Sox is ready to return from his foot injury with a matchup rating of 258 against the visiting Minnesota Twins Phil Hughes and his matchup rating of 219. But Sunday's National League even Steven matchup is another one to avoid, except for your hitters. It's in Cincinnati's Great American Ballpark, which has the highest combined left-handed batter and right-handed batter home run rates in Major League Baseball. Cardinal Carlos Martinez comes in with, to make his ninth career start and gets a matchup rating of minus 036. He faces the Reds' Cuban rookie, Rysel Iglesias, whose first Major League matchup rating is minus 155. Pitchers are often ahead of hitters in the early going, but this matchup could jumpstart your St. Louis and Cincinnati hitters' seasons. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at, we don't know where all this is going, is BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. Last week in this space, Ron Chandler talked about the divide between full season games and shorter term games. In that piece, he convincingly spelled out the demographic that generally characterizes the full-season fantasy player and how that demographic varies from the daily player. In that piece, the impression given was that there's not much overlap between the two camps, no middle ground. But myself, I live in that middle ground. I'm in my early 40s. I've been playing full-season fantasy games since my teens. I've also been playing the daily games for the past couple of years and very much enjoying them truth be told, at least as much as my traditional full-season formats. Ron's piece from last week generated a ton of feedback in the comments area. 
There's also a lively discussion in our subscriber forums where the pro and anti-daily game crowd are sort of feeling each other out. It strikes me that, even a few years into the emergence of these new formats, the level of discussion here hasn't moved much past the surface level. Those who are opposed to the daily games say things like, it's gambling. Those who are opposed to full season, opposed to full season games say things like, they're too much of a commitment. Let's be clear. I'm passing no judgment either way. But the discussion hasn't progressed much beyond these initial perspectives. One point from Ron's piece that rang true for me was the idea that our full season games have changed a lot over the years. We don't compile stats from the Tuesday and Wednesday USA Today anymore. We don't have to spend time on our summer vacations trying to find a payphone to register our fab bids for the week. We don't play 4x4 much anymore either. These daily games are still in their relative infancy. We're in the 4x4 USA Today publication schedule-driven era of daily fantasy sports right now. What is it going to look like in 5 or 10 years? We can't really predict that right now, other than to say that if these games stay as well capitalized as they are today, the pace of growth and change will be faster than anything we've seen over the past 30 years in the full season fantasy world. Along those lines, something caught my eye this week. Tout Wars is sponsoring a daily game competition for its full-season players. This is, of course, another example of how that daily fantasy space is infiltrating the traditional marketplace. But the structure of the Tout Daily Contest really caught my eye. Every Friday night, there's a private contest for the Tout entrance. There are prizes each Friday, plus rolling scores over four-week periods are used to determine qualification for a late-season championship round. When I saw this... I immediately thought of my longtime score sheet league. I play in this league with some college buddies and some other longtime acquaintances. It used to be cutthroat. Everyone prepared to the nth degree. There was a lot of trash talk. But as we've all moved from our leisure time filled 20s into our family responsibility filled 40s, the league has gone moribund. We all still love the league and would never let it die. But we can barely find the time for draft prep, let alone trash talk. There's a flurry of activity around the August trade deadline, but outside of that, in-season activity is pretty rare. We joke frequently that in, in another 20 years, when we all retire, the league will get back to being as cutthroat as it was when we were in our 20s. Why did the Tout Daily competition make me think of my score sheet league? Because when I read about the structure of this Tout Daily format, I think to myself, now this is something that the guys in my league might actually have time to get into and really enjoy. The opportunity to only play the game on Friday nights, but still compete against each other privately for some sort of prize and bragging rights, that's right in this group's wheelhouse. We don't have to wait for some future daily fantasy sports world for that to play out. You can do this kind of stuff right now. USA Today's fantasy score game is particularly friendly to these sorts of play-against-your-friend contests. And it makes me wonder, in the current state of affairs, the full-season fantasy game experience is interpersonal, it's about competing with people you know. On the other hand, the DFS experience is about taking money from people you don't know. But will it always be that way? Maybe not. Or at least, maybe the two formats, full season versus daily, that are so locked in opposition now, will eventually adapt, build a bridge, or find some common ground. And once that happens, maybe the players in both spaces will follow suit.
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy at BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com's co-general manager and speculator columnist and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of our show, our Talk with Todd commentator, the one and only Todd Zola. Also, I want to thank our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Stay right up to date when every new show drops. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be multiple expert league champion and author Larry Schechter on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.